On November 9th, the Ringo album is released. This Richard Starkey LP was almost a Beatle reunion. It did have all four of them on the record. Along with the Fab Four, there were lots of other pop luminaries present on the different tracks. There was Billy Preston, Klaus Voorman, Mark Bolin, Steve Cropper, David Bromberg, Jim Keltner, Nicky Hopkins, Martha Reeves, Mary Clayton, Bobby Keys, and on this number, we have the band performing a song written by George Harrison with Ringo. La, 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 It's a sunshine life for me If I could get away from this cloud Over me seems to just follow me around Welcome this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm Martin Quibell. Well, we've got a lot of stuff going on this week. Uh, Ringo is back out on tour, as we all know. He is, and he's um, all over the place. I, I keep seeing pictures of uh, of Ringo on stage on uh, people's Facebook pages. Hi to everybody on the uh, when they was Fab Facebook page that keeps leaving these pictures of Ringo. And Paul too is getting ready to go out on his fall tour. He actually just announced one more date in December down in South America. Yeah, he's been a bit quiet otherwise, hasn't he, Ed? We got a bunch of photos of him. Uh, he was at the U2 show, and there's lots of photos of Paul rocking out to Bono and co. Well, they've been on stage together, haven't they? Live 8. Yes. Then there's another one where uh, he's on the aisle and uh, Adele comes up and gives him a big hug. Well, can you blame her? And then we know that he's been running tour rehearsals in Los Angeles because there's a couple of both paparazzi photos and a photo from uh, one of the fellows in the studio. I believe he said that Paul had mentioned the shirt from the band that the fellow was in and so he actually gave paul one he works in this rehearsal space at least he's helped paul out because it's not like paul can afford to buy his own shirts we're not redoing the fashion show we just spent (laughs) over an hour with deirdre and john stone talking about the beatles and fashion if you didn't listen to that episode go and look it up that's a fantastic episode i really enjoyed that The other thing that's going on in Beatle world is Paul McCartney's Life and Lyrics podcast is out. If you choose not to pay for it, you can get them weekly. The first two episodes have already come out, Eleanor Rigby and Back in the USSR. Yep, and they're both fascinating. The plus point to me is hearing Paul actually saying these stories and mentioning these things as opposed to it just being in the book. The lyrics book's fascinating. But to hear him chatting with Paul Muldern about it, that is just interesting. 
Well, stay tuned as we are planning to do whole episode reviews of not per episode. Obviously, the McCartney podcast is only a 20 to 25 minute podcast. And well, we're going to do an hour. We're probably going to do four at a time because there's 12 that are coming out in this batch and another 12 coming out next year. That's great to know as well that there's another season next year. Did they say something like Easter? Probably like Ooh. February, March. That's great. Just briefly, Paul sounds so at ease. And in some of these conversations, he's actually eating. Yes. And he swears. But I love that. This is very clearly him at ease. Yeah, he's very unguarded in the discussion. That The use of language proves that because he's so open. It, like he's just there talking to a friend and... It's not like there's any big media thing going on. It's just like two friends talking. The one thing I will say, the free iTunes version are loaded down with promos and commercials. Pushkin advertises all of their own shows like every four minutes yeah. or so. Yes. I would say it's a bit more than 25%. I would say it's about 30 to 35% ads. I did find it worth my while to spend $6.99 for a month just to get access to all of the episodes right now and to be able to hear them commercial-free. Yeah, that is good. And if you know what you're doing, well, there are ways to download them once you have the access, but we won't go into that. No, we don't want to get into any trouble. There's nothing illegal about it. It's just most people don't know how to do it. Yeah. All right. Ringo, we were hoping that we would get a deluxe edition this year, and well, that hasn't happened, much like many other things that haven't yet been announced. Mm, it's a bit late for them to announce it for December, then. You never know. I don't know what's going on with that. Now and Then is still out there. The one announcement we did get on John's birthday, which was buried in a press release, is that the Mind Games deluxe edition is coming out in summer of next year six discs i am really looking forward to that and at the same time they have released all of the material which was on the blu-rays onto apple music and whatever streaming service you prefer which is nice you gave me a little bit of guff about why you want it on streaming it's slightly lower quality but it's so much easier to play through your earbuds or I have the AirPods Max, and so you get the full surround. It's nice to get the surround in your head, and you know that everything is spatially correct. Whereas in your stereo, even with the six speakers, it's like, is that quite right? You're always adjusting things. I would love to hear the surround version of the title track, because that all that's going on on that song, I mean, I was thinking that an evolution mix of mind games itself would be incredible, but... Wow, could you imagine that? Surround sound. Yeah, and we don't have a surround sound mix of Ringo to bring it back to our topic of That's the true. day. Ringo has released surround mixes of some of his later albums, but the Ringo album itself is not yet available in Atmos or 5.1 or whichever surround format you prefer. I mean, it's surprising because it's the album that, for all intents and purposes, everybody or a lot of people will say, oh, that's the Ringo album. Although I'd probably put it alongside Time Takes Time, but you know that's the album that everybody probably screams at that knows what they do. It's certainly the best known of Ringo's 70s album. And it's probably the only one that for sure is going to get its own box set. I'm still hoping that the rest of Ringo's albums get put together in a single box set. Remaster them. Fingers crossed they do 5.1 mixes. I, I know we're all just waiting for boy, yo, 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 to just float around your head when you put those headphones on for bad boy. We need a spatial mix of the no-no song. <laughs> all right. So the topic for this week, we're going to spend this week and next talking about Ringo Starr's album, Ringo. Ringo's kind of a strange album in as much as you would have expected Ringo to really come out with a pop album in, you know, 1970 or 1971. Yeah, but Ringo even says that it's it's an accidental album, doesn't he? 
apparently he had not even planned to start a new record. Now he had had the singles at that point. You know, he had early 1970 and he had the Bukua Blues album and the Sentimental Journey album. Was Ringo more interested in his acting career and sort of his external projects than he was staying in the limelight as a pop star, do you think? It's possible, but also, I mean, this album is very different to those two previous albums where perhaps, you know, Ringo was thinking in terms of an album of having a steady group of people behind him, whereas, to use a quote from a famous science fiction show, Ringo is sort of like a group of songs from a ragtag group of musicians. They're not all the same people throughout, so maybe... Ringo was looking at the standard way or his perceived way of what an album by an artist is, which is to him or was to him back then, one group of people throughout the entire album doing the songs so that there's that through line of where they all have a similar sound to them. Whereas this album is made up of music that's by all different backing musicians. Well, I mean, that is what George Harrison was trying to do with the Apple label. He was trying to create his own wrecking crew, his own Funk Brothers for Apple. And that's really what All Things Must Pass and, to a certain extent, Derek and the Dominoes were about. And, you know, spill that over into the Doris Troy album and the Billy Preston album. It's something that never came to pass. Maybe Ringo was kind of thinking, oh, well, once George gets that in line, I can take advantage of that. Maybe. I don't know what Ringo means in a sense, because to me, these songs, they don't sound accidental at all. They sound as though they were meant to be songs that were placed together on this set. They work perfectly together. How would you record that many songs by accident? Is that only they work because Ringo's telling us they work? This has a little bit of the Sergeant Pepper feel to it. You know, it, it opens up with the crowd and it closes out with the crowd. Yeah, I've always thought that was interesting. At the end, you get the thanks like you do at, at the end of the live show. Other than that, this is a Ringo album. Of course, at that time, we really had no concept of what a Ringo album would be, although this has more or less become Ringo's standard for putting together a record. It's changed a little bit in the last few years with the EP side of things, but even that is still, I'll do four songs, I'll do a country-ish song, I'll do a pop song, I'll get my friends to come in and write and play on this, and we'll come up with something the other side. Yeah, I was thinking that this is the first album of those from here on. You know, you get the Goodnight Vienna and you get the Road to Grab Your and then onwards. It is very much like I've got my buddies along to help me. You know, they've all come and brought me a song each. The sole exception to that is kind of the Mark Hudson era. Mark Hudson brought in this whole batch of musicians, the the roundheads, people that were, as you were saying, sort of Ringo's tried and true backup you know these are the guys who are going to do most of it and anyone else we might bring on is just kind of going to be a guest star for now you do have the through line on on some of these other ones where he's got the, his friends with him you have the through line where some of the back line are the same people it's just ancillary people where it'd be like you know jeff lynn's on this one replace jeff with paul mccartney on this one paul comes out and george is on this one and George is out, John's on this one, and you swap out some players for others, but the people in the background are still the same throughout. Well, it's like Ringo said in that AP interview, you you can't very well go out and make a record with just me and the drums. You can play piano as long as it's in C. (laughs) So, you know, let's go into the record. The record starts with I'm the Greatest, which is, you know, a John Lennon tune. And this kind of is part of Ringo's, oh, it's an accidental album, because John had written this just post-Plastic on a band. Right, so this had been around for a while then. The first time that they aired Hard Day's Night on BBC One, John Lennon sat down and watched it. December the 28th, 1970. Presumably he and Yoko were sitting down and watching Gee, I wonder if Yoko had ever seen it at that point. I don't know. What did John think he came up with I'm the Greatest? Based on the uh, very famous line by Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Boxing again. John with boxing and Paul with boxing as well. They've got that similarity to each other there. But, I mean, John is right. 
he would sound a little bit cocky doing this. And it also was kind of the antithesis to what was going on in Plastic on a Band. Yeah, it didn't really fit with the rest of the material. Or did it? I don't know. Yeah. John Lennon was always, I'm the best thing and I'm the worst thing in the whole world. You know, he spends a lot of Plastic Ono Band putting himself down. So he could have put himself down on the Plastic Ono Band, and this could have ended up on Imagine, and him be completely the opposite and saying, you know, I was the worst on that album. This time, I'm the greatest on this album. <laughs> the long and the short of it is, yes, the song sat around for a while. Yeah. Not, not different for any of the Beatles. Just think of Paul with Flaming Pie and... Even when winter comes. So Ringo had gone to Los Angeles for the Grammy Awards for the concert for Bangladesh. And the winner is. Oh boy. Here we go. The concert for Bangladesh. Yay! I've just got something that I prepared for this. I'd just like to say that I'm picking this up on behalf of everyone who was at the concert and everyone who put in the time, especially George Harrison, Phil Spector, Ringo Starr, Billy Preston, Ravi Shankar, Klaus Vormann, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Leon Russell, Badfinger, and for Apple for getting it together. What a float. All the best. Thank you. So he was, I got to fly all the way to the bloody United States. I'm going to be spending all these hours on a plane. I want a reason to do it. And that is really where Richard Perry came into the story. Right. He said, well, okay, why don't we try and record some stuff? And he bought in Richard Perry. Richard Perry would produce a number of the songs which would go on, well, almost the whole record. They worked so well together that Ringo said, okay, this is going to be the record, and this is what I'm doing during this trip to Los Angeles. Do we know how they both met each other, Richard Perry and Ringo Starr? Richard Perry came through Nilsson. All right, okay. Here's a quote from Ringo on that. We met at a session for one of Harry's albums. I went down and played, and Richard and I got to egging each other on about doing something together. We ended up at a club. (laughs) What evening of Ringo Starr in the early to mid-1970s didn't end up in a club? I know. When we were leaving, we promised we'd get together. So there you go. There we go. Yeah, Richard Perry is another one of those. You could look at at him and see all these different through lines. Richard Perry did like to have Klaus, for instance, on bass because Klaus ended up also being Carly Simon's bass player who Richard Perry was producer for. Yeah, I mean, all these people all go together. It's interesting how doing Toppermost to take a short diversion has kind of changed how I looked at this record. That You know, I, I mentioned the Jack Nishi thing. There's just a whole lot of connections which end up in the building of this record yeah but i mean thinking about it i've only just thought this but you could go back to the very first album of ringo's really with the sentimental journey because that's a lot of friends coming to help him out on that one as well because he's got like maurice gibb helping out with that one he's got paul helping with that and he's got all sorts of celebrity friends there as well although this one is the most obvious because you can hear them in the songs So what do you think of I'm the Greatest? I like the song. John's quote was it, you know, um, he couldn't sing it, but it was perfect for Ringo because he could say it and people wouldn't get upset. If John himself said it, they'd take it a bit too seriously. And you can see that because it's almost like a tongue-in-cheek, humorous wink almost from Ringo. Whereas, yeah, people, if John said it, people would be like, all right, here we go again. He's saying, you know, that he's the greatest. And people might not see the humorous side not a bad way to start the record. You got a John Lennon song, even though it's a little bit of a callback to actually what it what it reminds me of. It's kind of the opposite of that Lennon Yellow Submarine demo. No one cared. No one cared. And it even sounds a little bit like it, you know? Yeah. I also like the fact that this album essentially is starting with three Beatles together because you've got George on this as well. And Billy Preston and Klaus Horman. Yep. It is a really good pop song. It's it's a pretty slick pop song, even though you can still actually kind of hear uh, the Plastic on a Man origins in it. You can hear the, that style, the slightly spare piano at the very beginning is almost a John Lennon trademark at that point in time. Yeah, it is. I mean, John on piano was always very spare with his playing anyway. It wasn't. It's not a Nicky Hopkins piano. It's certainly not a Billy Preston piano. I mean, the background on organ and electric piano, but yeah. 
the point I'm trying to make about this song is it really does fit right in tune wise with both the Plastic Ono band in before and the Imagine in after. It's a nice little bridge between the two almost. I can hear George Harrison guitar in this song, especially the slide guitar on it, has that very Imagine feel to it. You know, it was in the album sessions for Imagine, not the song. That's what you're talking about. That's what I mean, yeah. And and then the lyrics are also... It's actually very Beatley lyrics. You know, it's the whole idea of, oh, I was here, I was growing up, and this happened, and then this other thing happened, and here's the position I'm in right now. You can almost imagine this as being the same guy who was singing Goodnight. That's true. Maybe 40 years after this, Ringo would basically use this as a template and he'd do, an, he'd do a song like this that's similar, talking about his history, almost every album from 2010 onwards. <laughs> and looking forward, it's kind of the beautiful boy sort of thing that John Lennon would do. The double fantasy, you, you can see echoes of the kind of writing, the, oh, I'm here with the family and we may be going through troubles, but... We're also having a great time and they support me. You know, what really helps with this is how close they both are in age, Ringo and John, because they were both born the same year. And also the fact that they both at that time had family issues, should we say. Ringo and Maureen hadn't completely separated. I think they were still hanging on by a thread. Yeah, but a very, very, very difficult thread. As we now know, I mean, Maureen had had her fling with George. Yep. Wife swapping in the Beatle world. Well, they swapped all sorts of other things. They might as well, you know. They swapped positions in the van, for instance, for the Beatle sandwich. <laughs> it worked for George and Eric, and George and Eric stayed friends. So let's try that. Oh, yeah. Although George seems to believe he fell in love with Maureen. <laughs> that didn't last very long. No. Anything other notable you want to say about this song? It's one of those songs that's only got Ringo on the drums, hasn't it? It's not got the double drums of him and Keltner. Correct. Which I think helps it a lot because it's not that produced a song. It sounds like it is just them in the room playing with each other and it has that feel, whereas a lot of the rest of the songs on the album, I've got a very, this person came in here and did this part, then this person came in here and it's more built. This sounds like a group in the room together. That's because, to a certain extent, is Ringo just layering his vocal over John's. Yeah. It was still the demo, more or less. I mean, it was a produced, finished version of the demo, but in sound and in the way the record comes through, it is still pretty much just John's demo. And and we're fortunate that we do have all those different copies of John's demos of I'm the greatest. Yeah. I do like these demos, and you get that sort of idea of where it was coming from. All right, on to the second track. Uh, Have You Seen My Baby, a Randy Newman song. I'd recommend an album called Good Good Old Old Boys. Boys. Yeah. Classics of all time. Gary's on fire. (laughs) Sail It Away. Uh, Sail Away. Mama Told Me Not To Come. Oh, Mama Told Me Not To Come. He did write that. People can sing his songs, like Harry Nielsen did a whole album of uh, Randy Newman's songs. But could Randy Newman... No. Could Randy Newman do, for example, uh, the Beatles? No, no, no. He could. Randy Newman attempts the Beatles. Here we go. Here we go. Randy Newman attempts the Beatles. Okay. Hey, Jude, (laughs) don't make it bad. (laughs) Take a sad song and make it better. (laughs) Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make her feel better. Na, 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 (laughs) na. Okay, you've never done that before. I would have remembered. Bad God, wonderful tribute to Randy Newman. You know, Ringo should have done more Randy Newman. I think so as well. I really like this song. It was released on an album in 1970. Yeah, it was released on the Randy Newman album, 12 Songs, and there were actually a bunch of different versions of it before Ringo finally got his hands on it. I'd I'd like to hear the Flippin' Fats Domino version. I bet that's fabulous.
You got a Peggy Lee version. Peggy Lee. In May of 1970s. I seen him with some woman Riding down the street When you threw with my baby woman Send my baby home to me Hold on, hold on, hold on Hold on, hold on that's the way records were at the time. Someone would release something or there was an album track, which wasn't necessarily a single. It's like, Oh, I'll have that. The version that a lot of people like the most is that flame and groovies version. Just by the name of the group. That sounds like it would be fab. almost a t-rex version of the song maybe you know a little bit less bang a gong a little bit more into the harder driving guitars more telegram sam and um 20th century boy that's kind of the feel that i get off of that record but you have actually got the t-rex man himself mark boland doing some tasted guitar all over this song and you know you can see why it's a very popular record it's kind of crazy that we all know this from the Ringo version. We meaning the Beatle people. Yeah. Ringo is almost putting the different versions together when he comes up with his own version. So I don't know very much about Randy Newman. Newman began his songwriting career at the age of 17, penning hits for acts such as the Fleetwoods, Scylla Black, Gene Pitney, and the Alan Price set. In 1968, he made his formal debut as a solo artist with the album Randy Newman. Produced by Lenny Waronker and Van Dyke Parks. Four of Newman's non-soundtrack albums have charted in the U.S. Top 40. Sail Away, Good Old Boys, Little Criminals and Harps and Angels. He was really trying to be more in the singer-songwriter mold. Right. Okay. At this point in time, he and Nilsson were kind of comparable. Right. I'll write material. I'll put out my own material. If other people do it, great. And he would also write some songs that got given away. Yeah. This was one that he recorded for himself, and people had done that for years. Over the course of a year, year and a half, you had a bunch of different artists of a bunch of different types recording this song. I can see why Ringo would have been drawn to it. Yes. And listening back to this record, I'm so glad he didn't do it today because the vocal performance is not perfect. And he would have just slathered the autotune all over it were he recording this in 2023. Yes, he would. But I like it the way it is on Ringo. I like the life that he throws into it, because he he gives it his all. There's an excitement in there. you have actually got the double drumming of uh, Jim and Ringo together in the background. So, again, what do you think of the song? I like the song a lot, and uh, I think the different elements put together work. It's like you said, it's, it's almost like a mix and match. You've got the obvious guitar there by Mark Bolden in the front, up front of it, and um, but then you've also got the horns in there as well that give it something different, and the great piano by James Booker on there as well, the session player. The very slightly Ringo going out of tune, not only does it fit, it's really 
charming in the way it works in the song. His voice has got emotion in there that pushes through and gives the song life. And I think what Ringo really adds to it, Ringo really puts a little bit more country into it. It would be his first album after his country album. Oh, he, he, he still needs to make a country album. Come on, Ring. We got the EP coming, and is is apparently coming sooner than we thought. I would like a full LP, but Ringo's not doing LPs anymore. He's not, but then he's putting all the EPs together to make them into an LP. Well, but he didn't the first time around. He said he was, but he, he didn't do it, so. Right. We might, might be able to make more money from doing the EPs. Making money and playing music is a totally different thing these days, and, well... That's kind of one thing that Ringo doesn't have to worry about. That's true. So that brings us to the next song on the record, Photograph, which is really saying something, considering this is such a big record. This would certainly be Ringo's most successful artistically for a good long while, at least. You know, it's written with George. Would you say it matches John and Paul's work? George is really the star writer on this record. It's not the first time that George has helped Ringo with songs, though, is it? I mean, how much help do you think he gave to Ringo on Octopus's Garden, for instance? Octopus's Garden is probably 40% George. George would be responsible for a significant part of the melody of Octopus's Garden. And probably here in It Don't Come Easy as well. Although this is really the first time that George would be credited as a co-writer. Yeah, it don't come easy. Do you think that's just a carryover from the Beatles days where where people helped Ringo and it just got credited to Ringo? Maybe George and Ringo were thinking, okay, there's still going to be a Beatles project. Yeah, John's left. The, The real hardcore feuding hadn't quite started yet between John and Paul. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get over it and we'll still have something in 1971. Yeah. So, the, oh, let's do our own ballad of John Yoko. That's kind of my supposition as to how this really came about. Yeah, you're right, because when they were writing, they'd, you know, not long been in to record with Paul. I mean mine. Photograph is one of my favorite post Beatles songs by any of the Beatles. Who was it written about? This question is from Brian in Florida. Uh, well, Brian in Florida... Photograph I wrote actually in Spain. I was uh, working in Spain and it's, it's, it's really, I didn't feel it was about anybody. I thought it was like generic that it was every time I see your face reminds me of the places we used to go. So it was like a lot of memories really. And, uh, and it worked out great. Photograph was written in the south of France in May of 1971. And another song that's been gestating for a while then when they recorded it. Again, Ringo had no pop record, and maybe he was just waiting and he was going to record it as a single. Maybe. I mean, it's, it's a perfect single to my mind. It came about because they were all in Cannes and Ringo had hired a yacht, the SS Marala. Marala? M-A-R-A-L-A. Strange name. Why don't they just call it Malcolm? (laughs) Because we already have too many of those. Yes. (laughs) They were all there for mixed wedding. We're going to repeat a story. Both of the current soon-to-be ex-wives were there. Maureen was there and Patty was there. It was a grand old holiday that they were having. They had mixed wedding and then they went to Monaco for the Grand Prix. And then they went off and had some time on this yacht. And at the same time, It Don't Come Easy was in the charts. That did really well, didn't it? That must have given them some um, inspiration and made them feel better because this song that they'd already written together was high up in the charts and making, you know, moves. Ringo was clearly questioning where he was going to go with his career and everybody else wanted to help him out still they were always backing Ringo up as an aside I think this would be around the time when the the Stones would be working on Exile on Main Street there are stories of both John and George and Ringo coming by to those sessions at various times wow another three tools (laughs) after all this partying they spent some time on this yacht two Beatles their current wives soon to be exes and one solo black 
Yes, Scylla Black was there for the writing of this song, as we've mentioned on Top of Most and previously on this show. Fab, yeah. So part of that trip, George and Ringo were hanging out, and George pulled out his guitar, and they worked together, and they wrote this song. Do you think they wrote it there and then, or do you think it was something that they'd been writing for a while? Oh, I would guess that the beginnings of the song were probably already there. Maybe they had some lyrics. Probably. As things go, once night fell, they had a meal, and George said, have a listen to this song. Again, pulled out the guitar and played photograph for them. Now, I would guess George was singing at this point. You never know. I mean, you know, it's got a sync song, you know, sing-along type of thing, so they both might have been singing along together. We know on the demo, George is singing. Yeah. They finished the song and asked around, okay, you all have any thoughts on this? Now, Scylla also claims that they were chipping in some added lyrics during this, uh, yeah. which is a maybe. Maybe. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say that when they're in the Beatles thing, don't they? You know, oh, I was there for Yellow Submarine. I provided this and I provided this for Eleanor Rigby. And yeah, yeah. Only you can prove that. I mean, we also know that that was a way that they tended to work. Paul did certainly go around and ask whoever was around, much to John Lennon's chagrin. You know, I need a word here. Tell me about this. And we all know about Big Mal and his contributions to at least a handful of lyrics that made their way into Beatles song, most notably fixing a hole where at least Mal claimed that he was going to get a co-writing credit, but never did. Poor Mal. It's a shame. He gets a writing credit on this album later. Yep. As we always say, when whenever Mal comes up, look for Ken Womack's book this November. Absolutely. And then, of course, the actual coffee table book with all of the information in it. Anyway, back to the story. Once that was done, everybody had contributed some lyrics. Scylla being, at this point, a pretty big star. Definitely in the UK and Europe, yep. As we know, she never really made a big splash on this side of the pond, but her television career was well underway, supporting her musical career, such as it was. So, So she wanted the song for herself. I'll have that one. You mind if I take it and... Ringo turns around and goes, no, it's too bloody good for you. I'm having it myself. (laughs) Straight to the point. Well, that's Ringo, isn't it? It's a well-constructed song. The the lyrics are, are really well put together. Given that, at least in the States, it's really become almost on a par with Yesterday and Imagine. Okay. I don't realize how big a splash these things sometimes made in the U.S. Well, again, not because of the way it was received at the time. After 2001, after the events of the Twin Towers, in New York, a lot of people would go putting up photographs of their loved ones around the city. And that just kind of morphed into this song becoming an anthem for the events of that sad day. It works, doing that. Then Ringo himself would kind of take up that meeting in concert for George. Yeah. It is very much moved away from the lovelorn, oh, we used to be together and now we're not. And every time I see your face, it reminds me of the places we used to go. It's more a song of longing after people have left us. The first recording was made later the following year during the Living in the Material World session. That's probably the one, the demo that we have with George singing. Yeah. You don't think it was like an official attempt at starting to record a proper version then for Ringo to add vocals to? It might have been, but that also seems to be the way that they would frequently work for Ringo is, you know, they would record a demo with themselves singing it and try and match Ringo's cadence. I mean, we, you know, we already spoke of I'm the Greatest, where John is at least trying to sound like Ringo a little bit in his vocal. And in here, George is not quite singing as complex as he normally would. No. So maybe the thought was we'll we'll record some backing and 
I'll do the vocal, and then you can just overdub your vocal on top of this. I've never heard any any of Paul's songs for Ringo, demos for those with Paul's vocal. That is true, yes. You know, maybe Paul just does the backing first. I mean, Paul is capable of envisioning the whole song in his head really much more than John or George were and before they get it down. Yeah, which is weird, because you would have thought if there was, it, w- it would have made the rounds by now, a version of like 6 o'clock or any of the other songs that Paul wrote for for Ringo, you would have thought they would be there for people to hear by now if there was a version of that with Paul singing. Yeah, the only demos I can think of that actually have Paul singing are the ones we don't have. Uh, what is it? Angel in Disguise is the one from later on where there's that tape yeah. where it's Paul's demo with Paul singing it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, from Time Takes Time. I think Peter Asher was part of that. The year following that, in March of 1973, while they were working on this album proper, everyone would get together at Sunset Sound Recorders in Los Angeles and record the version that we all know. Yep. Great version. Well, it's classic. The performance is very definitely Beatle-worthy, if you will. It's got got an almost wall of sound, although I, I still maintain better than Phil Spector. Uh, of the multiple drums and the acoustic guitars to layer the song. And part of that, again, as mentioned earlier, is because they bought in one Jack Nishi to arrange this song. Well, you, you might as well get the best in there to do it. And as we've commented other places, including Toppermost, Jack Nishi was also responsible for a significant chunk of the wall of sound sound. Other than doing the orchestration, then, do you think that Nietzsche was part of the whole get so many guitarists together and so many drummers together to give it a bigger sound. I can see them sitting there, let's really fill it up. Fill, P-H-I-L. Yeah, I like that saying. (laughs) (laughs) Among the musicians on this track, and there are a lot, you have the orchestra, you have the choral arrangement that Nishi did. But as far as the rock and roll musicians, you got Ringo, you got George. He's playing that 12-string acoustic. Yes. Gorgeous sound on that. He didn't play it enough. No. The Beatles really only use the acoustic 12-string significantly on the Help album. You hear it a little bit on Help. You hear it a little bit on I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love. So for whatever reason, they didn't actually do much more with it after that. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't bring it back out again for like the White Album and the, the Let It Be, se- the Get Back sessions. Yeah. Although I think George had one there. I have to go look. You know, we've got all those footage of those guitars lying around in Get Back. I think it was there with him. He bought in almost everything he might even conceivably want to play while they were filming. Well, you might as well be sure and have one of everything there, aren't you, just in case? Do you think the wall of sound was built up or do you think it was recorded live with all of those musicians there? I would guess that it was layered in, although they probably had pretty thick layers. Well, that's why we want this Ringo box. Part of the reason we're doing this, this is the 50th anniversary of the Ringo record. And we'd always kind of thought that we might get a Ringo box where we would hear some of these outtakes. We would get the first version of Photograph and things like that, but that seems to have kind of been mooted a little bit. Yeah, and maybe get even a version of Six O'Clock with Paul on lead. (laughs) This is guesswork. It could have been recorded initially as a live guide, say, with Keltner, Bobby Keys, Nicky Hopkins, Klaus, and George. They're providing the musical backing, and they might have built it up from that. You know, the orchestra and the... Choir were certainly recorded separately. Yeah. So I'm thinking the build-up of the acoustic guitars, they could have been added later on. So, all right, uh, Ringo, George, Bobby Keys on the tenor sax, Nicky Hopkins, Beatle favorite Nicky Hopkins, Beatle yeah. and Stone's favorite Nicky Hopkins on the piano. We've already mentioned it, you know, the Exile on Main Street, he shows up on there a lot with Rolling Stones. Vinnie Pontia, who would be a big Ringo collaborator, on acoustic and backing vocals. Right. Jimmy Calvert on acoustic. Klaus on bass. 
Yep. Keltner was the other drummer. Yeah, I do love those bits where you've got both of them doing something different, but they work perfectly together. You get these fills that work really well together on the drums. Well, Ringo and Keltner are very, very good together. That's one of the joys of the whole All-Star thing. People accuse Ringo of being a little bit lazy on the drums when he's out there, but he isn't. He is really concentrating heavily on the fills and letting just kind of the beat go to Greg Bissonette. Yeah, it's a trick that Ringo would get used to from here on. I mean, he he does it a lot. I mean, even with the Tug of War album with Paul where Ringo's on there and he's on the Pipes of Peace album as well, you've got songs where Ringo's there playing drums himself, but you've also got songs where Ringo's there being on drums at the same time as the great Steve Gadd. Who would also come back in Beatle Lore later on. Yes, yeah, he would. Finishing out the musicians on there, you had the Von Eaton brothers. I guess Badfinger was <laughs> no longer running in Beatle circles at this point in time. It's all a great, great production on the whole song. All the instrumentation's brilliant. Do you like the Brother record? Have you ever heard it? No, I've not heard that. It's worth spending some time with. It's, you know, one of those little remembered Apple releases. Okay. Brother. Is it available everywhere? Uh, It is still available on CD and vinyl from Amazon. Nice. It is out of print, but still available from Amazon. That's Photograph, which deserves its status. It's a beautiful song. It's beautifully arranged. What else is there to say about that record? It's become, without a doubt... Ringo's best known song, I would say. Non-Beatles song. Yes. And we move on from there to another much more quirky Georgian Ringo collaboration. Sunshine Life for Me, Sail Away Raymond. Yes. I do like this song, even though it's possibly the simplest song on the whole album. I love this song, and I love the, the backing musicians on it as well, the band. It is very definitely a country style song it's the most country song on this record but it doesn't lose its pop sensibilities no i think it was a stroke of genius to get the members of the band on this song did george write it for himself or was he writing it purposely for ringo this was actually written before photograph this song came out of the dissolution of the beatles in march of 1971 okay you know after that whole business went down George went and stayed with Donovan for a while in Ireland. Donovan comes into the Beatles picture again. Despite every other time Donovan wants to take credit for adding a line here and there, I've never heard him say anything about writing or co-writing a piece of this song. I'm surprised he hasn't said anything about this song. Donovan never hesitates to say, oh yeah, I was there. Oh yeah, I contributed this. You know, Going back to what we were saying before about photograph, Donovan is one for taking a little bit of credit before he reminds you that he taught John and Paul how to do that picking style that Travis picking. Yeah, he tried to teach Paul. Paul did his own variation of it. Paul would walk in and out while I was teaching John. He would look over and see, oh, here's what you're doing. That's my very bad Donovan. He's a better Donovan than I can do. And it's, it's another of those songs that's like a hootenanny. As I have mentioned in this show, Toppermost has kind of given me a much different appreciation for this the, the Ringo album in in its entirety okay i mean i i always held this in high esteem the Ringo album as have i but it has made me reassess a number of ways i thought about some of the different songs uh, one of which being this one the the hootenanny elements it's just not something i'd ever considered before and you're correct it, it is there yeah it is the two previous albums were genre specific for the most part but this album this song shows it because of the country elements and the hootenanny and the sea shanty traditions that are included in this song it shows that this is the beginning of ringo 
mixing it up genre-wise on his albums as well. World music in its earliest stages. Yes. The way the Irish elements and the American country elements, which, granted, that combination really isn't all that far removed from, like, skiffle. Do you think that because it's in an open tuning on the guitar that that lends it that sort of feel? I could see that. The whole song is basically a, a similar vibe all the way through. If you've got the open tuning on the guitar and then you're just hitting notes every now and again to create a, a lick that stays all the way through it, then that lends itself to that sort of like laid back, almost like sing-along feel anyway. Well, especially because that's not usually the way George writes, the open tuning. No, it's very different because, you know, big with the chords, George was, but this is very... I don't like using the word simple, but it sort of is. Yeah, but simple is not a negative thing. The whole joy of... The first time you discover the Beatles is that at a base level, they are writing very simplistically. Yeah. And their playing is not complex until you sit down and listen to it, until you really dig into it. It's like, oh, wow. You can get up there and play respectable version of Beatles songs, really, when you only know four chords. Because I think Paul says that in the new Paul McCartney lyrics podcast. You've also mentioned slightly, and you're right, there's a world music sort of, you know, a lot of people who are Indian musicians don't like that phrase either. But it's got a certain almost Indian music feel to it as well, because of it being based around that pedal, uh, as they call it, sort of approach to playing. And it's got that going on there is very close to Indian music because it is based around a specific note or chord that the whole song is based around. That's a real interesting observation. It is almost kind of like a drone thing. Yeah, almost in a, dare I say, Philip Glass approach where you've got this thing there and everything else works around so long as you've got that back in there throughout and everything else dots around that initial drone background of the composition of the song in ireland donovan was there because for the same reason the stones had left england he was a tax exile you can understand that how much they were charging in tax at that time one for you 19 for me yes i still don't understand pound shillings and pence before my time (laughs) aunties and uncles are looking down on me and shaking the fingers at me i know that since the apple thing was in George's mind at the time, as, as mentioned, this was a song which came out of the dissolution of the Beatles. And John and George were starting to become a little disillusioned with Alan Klein at this point in time. Dare we say that Paul McCartney was right? Well, John Lennon certainly did. Yes. The subtitle of the song, Sail Away Raymond, Raymond was one of Alan Klein's lawyers. So is this a way of George telling Raymond to um, go away? Well, that's what George said. He was instructing Raymond to sail away. Yes, a much nicer way of saying something than uh, George has been known to say. (laughs) Well, it's a subtle version of Steel and Glass, which was directed at Klein himself, although John, for whatever reason, never actually admitted it. Now, there's a subject in itself, Steel and Glass, or How Do You Sleep? Well, the, the two of them together, for sure. So, yeah, this is a gorgeous song. It is a beautiful song. Like I said, I, l- I love the interplay of the band. That They were one of the great backing bands. Don McLean did a really, not too different, but different enough cover of this song, which is really pretty cool. I love Don McLean's version of this. I really do. Go and, go and be on the lookout for that. You can also find it on YouTube. A very underrated artist. Well, it's sunshine life for me If I could get away from this cloud That's over me Seems to just follow me around Sunshine life for me is probably the least regarded of this sort of sandwich of songs here. I think that's the importance of this song in some ways, is it, is it proves and shows all the different variations of genre that Ringo's 
playing with. It helps keep the record diverse. You can't get much more diverse than what you've got coming up next. All of this while keeping a nice pop sheen over the whole endeavor. It never strays so far from it. There's no revolution number nine on this record. Has Ringo ever had a revolution number nine on one of his albums? Well, Spooky Weirdness, that's kind of a strange song. Yes, and it's got the perfect uh, title to match it as well. So, all right, side one of Ringo closes out with You're 16, an old 60s song by uh, the Sherman Brothers, Bob and Dick Sherman. Yep, the people who wrote the music for Mary Poppins. Ringo has stopped playing it live, and I kind of wish he'd managed to find a way to massage the lyrics a little bit, because Ringo's so good at this song live. Could you imagine Ringo singing You're 60? You're beautiful, and you're mine. (laughs) I could see Ringo doing something like We're 16, maybe? Maybe. We're 16, you're beautiful, and you're mine. Yeah. It's almost like a looking back to that time, as opposed to being somebody who's the age that he is, looking at somebody who's 16 and going, you know, you're beautiful, and you're mine, and there's only, what, 60-something years between us? I could see him sort of bringing a very slight wistful feel to it, doing it live, then taking it into the to the rock side of things. But nonetheless, Ringo is not bringing the song back. The artist who originally performed it, as you pointed out, is the father of one of the latter-day members of Fleetwood Mac. Johnny Burnett, yes. Billy Burnett's dad. Interesting the credit that Paul has on this song. Well, he's credited as playing the kazoo. Yes, which is different. But it's not actually a kazoo. No, this is just him putting his hands to his mouth and making noises through through his hands. It's kind of the same thing they did on Lady Madonna. Right. Of course. We've got a quote from Richard Perry saying, in fact, the solo on Year 16, which sounds like a kazoo or something, was Paul singing very spontaneously as we played that track back. So he's singing the solo on that. That's simplifying it. It's not singing. It's just making noises through your closed hands or, or whatever. I do think he's probably right that it was something which came along spontaneously. That it wasn't something they had planned, and they probably didn't even have a kazoo solo plan. You know, Paul does that. He likes to vocalize the sound of instruments. Again, it's back to Paul is that Brian Wilson kind of genius. Yes. He envisions everything in his head. He knows how he wants it to sound. So it's like, here's how the mix is going to be. How would Paul have heard your 16? It was actually recorded in London, and the reason it was recorded in London was because uh, Paul McCartney had to get some production work done on the James Paul McCartney special. Wow. I never saw that link coming. So who did he choose to do the production work? He chose Richard Perry. I can understand why with Richard's incredible arrangements and that sort of thing would fit perfectly with that. Well, somebody had to produce Gotta Sing, Gotta Dance. Classic. So it was during that session that they all traveled down to Apple Studios. Ringo was in London as well, and uh, they recorded Your 16 as well as the Paul McCartney track, which, well, we will get to. We will. In the next episode. We do have the unadorned Take One available, and Paul does indeed do the uh, kazoo on the very first recording of your 16 that Ringo had so wow this isn't an overdub that was later on it was there from inception essentially correct I would guess that they were probably working on it in the studio and Paul had this idea oh let's do this and then then he did it and then it's like okay let's do one yep He knew what he was doing. In addition to that amongst the comments that I have here It is said that Ringo Starr's version of Year 16 remains one of the few number one singles to feature a kazoo or kazoo-like sound. I I would agree with that. I don't think I've ever heard a kazoo in a number one. That's why we're doing Toppermost, isn't it? (laughs) Once we find the record with a kazoo on it, we'll go, you're wrong. Did Crosstown Traffic get to number one by Jimi Hendrix? Does that have a kazoo on it? It does indeed have a kazoo on it. Harry Nelson sang backing vocals on... 
Ringo's version. Nicky Hopkins is heard playing the piano, including going up and down the scale in the instrumental fade of the song. In Ringo's version, the melody and chords were different in the bridge to the original, which led to a minor key, while the original version used only major keys. That's kind of cool. It is. It's, it's creating contrast, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we don't usually go that deep into the chords, but, you know, the minor major thing is very important in the Beatles and the Beatles' legacy. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, so who who do you think came up with that? Was that Richard Perry that came up with the change, or was it somebody else that came up with the change? I don't know. It may have been Paul McCartney that came up with that change. That's true. Since we now know that they were all together working on this thing they had the musicians play it and obviously paul had heard them working on it and when he came up with the kazoo so maybe at the same time it's like you know what would be good and as we know paul just sees things in his head but ringo knows that when it comes to arrangement and these things even john lennon famously said about some of the songs into that you know it was irritating to admit sometimes a lot of the things that paul suggest are right for the song And that was when they weren't exactly on the best of terms. No. It wasn't in the middle of their feud, but they were still not quite friendly with each other just yet. The SNL thing hadn't happened yet. In addition to that, you ever wonder what those things are? You know, uh, Ringo goes off a little bit towards the end. You get a couple of, of weird things that Ringo's singing towards the end of your 16. Yeah. I just thought until now, I thought that was just drunken Ringo um, going off on one. But no, they are very specific things. Again, you wonder whether Ringo came up with this or Richard Perry did or Paul did. At first, right towards the end, he sings a little bit of the chorus from Clarence Frogman Henry's uh, hit song, I Don't Know Why But I Do. You You hear the but I do part coming in at the end there. That's a bit... Of a strange reference to throw in there. And then he's not so much singing, but he's sort of chanting, what shall we do with the drunken sailor? Which is an old Irish folk song. It is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because he says it twice. So we just keep saying it, doesn't he? Yeah. He says it once clearly, and then he sort of mumbles it a second time. What shall we do with the drunken sailor? What shall we do with the drunken sailor? What shall we do with the drunken sailor lie in the morning? It's a weird choice to find at the end of the record. Yeah, it's it's a bit of an Easter egg, isn't it, as they call it? Particularly the Frogman Henry reference, because he is very definitely singing that. Yeah, but in, in, in a way, it almost bookends, in a sense, because... You've got that there at the end of that where Ringo is just chatting away. And then at the end of side two, when we get there, the last song on side two is chatting away at the end of that song as well. This is true. Closing out the side, side A, Cashbox described Ringo's version of Your 16 as being fantastic and perfect for the 70s. That may be the best review Ringo's ever gotten. But I do think that they're right, and I think they're right with the rest of what they say about it as well. So they continue, not only is the vocal perfect and steady for this delightful, easygoing rocker, but the music is the perfect compliment. You know, it's just so good. Again, this whole record is just so good. I think now that we know the fact that, that Paul was involved throughout in the recording session, I think this song benefits from the fact that Ringo has got both Paul and Richard Perry there to add this sheen to the song and and basically nail down the arrangement. Yeah, I mean, George does some of that, but, you know, that wasn't John Lennon's thing. No. This is another one which would have been, oh, if only this were a Beatles song. The four of them together with George Martin doing I'm the Greatest, can you imagine that? Well, you're not far off that as it is what they're lacking is they're lacking the production sheen you know uh richard perry does some of that but if paul were there or if george martin were there mm, yeah that would have been been perfect yes it would absolutely again this comes close but this could have maybe used a little bit of john lennon's edge on it on the cover of year 16 but it is very good it is very good yeah I, i like klaus's bass playing on it as well so all right that is 
side A of Ringo Starr's album, Ringo. We'll be back next time to talk about uh, side B and a little bit about Klaus's artwork in the booklet. Absolutely. Everyone take care. See you next time. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. On July 10, 1973, John, George, and Ringo record together for the first time in four years when they do John's I'm the Greatest for the Ringo album. Paul and Linda did a track for the LP, but at a different session. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.